0: Hello everybody, my name is Ben and I'll be covering particle physics with you today. So we're going to start with atomic structure, and I mean if you did GCSE physics uh, you will understand that atomic structure is pretty simple in the base level. You've got a cloud of probability that contains the uh, electrons, and then you've got an internal nucleus that contains the more massious uh, particles which are the protons and neutrons. Now, we will expand upon this idea as we get further into the topic, but uh, right now that's all we really need to know. A couple bits of good information around these particles. A proton has a charge of positive 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19 Coulombs, and it has a mass of 1.67 times 10 to the minus 27 kilograms. A neutron, however, does not have any charge, so it's just plain zero, but it still has the same mass as a proton at 1.67 times 10 to the minus 27 kilograms. An electron has a negative charge of minus 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19 coulombs, and has a mass of 9.11 times 10 to the minus 31 kilograms, much, much lighter than the proton and neutron respectively. Now, These are very much simplified for everyone's understanding in the fact that a proton is relative charge into this scale is positive 1, and it has a relative mass of 1. A neutron is neutral 0, so it has a neutral charge, and it has another relative mass of 1. Now, the electron itself has a negative charge of 1, it has a relative mass of, as far as we need to concern ourselves in this specification, one two thousandth, or 0.0005, the relative mass of a proton. Now, a proton number is the atomic number of an atom. You will normally see this as the smaller number in regards to atoms other than things like hydrogen, as it is describing the amount of charged particles inside the nucleus of the atom. Um, This or a non-ionized atom will be the same as the electrons, for example, with carbon it's six protons. Now, this is respective for all elements. For the base understanding that we have on most periodic tables, we'll have the elemental symbol, and the top number will be the nucleon number, which is the combination of the mass of all of the protons and all of the neutrons, as they are the same uh, relative mass. So that will be on top, and then the bottom number will be the proton number, which will describe its, be- its relative charge. Now, specific charge is very important. As it allows us to calculate it- something's charge relative to its mass, and so it is literally its charge divided by its mass. This says to us that the specific charge of an electron is much, much greater than the specific charge of a proton. The maths behind that is very simple and it's just useful for comparing particles and uh, other such charged objects. Now isotopes. Isotopes are very important because they are... I'm sure if you did uh, GCSE chemistry or physics you'll understand the definition of an isotope. For reference, hydrogen has three isotopes. protium, which is normal hydrogen, which is just a single proton and a single electron. Deuterium, which has a proton, a neutron and an electron and then tritium, which is slightly radioactive, which has two neutrons, a single proton and an electron. Isotopic data allows us to determine a lot of things, specifically the interactions between particles and their mass. And of course the specific charge of a particle changes depending on its isotope because the isotope will add more mass. Let's move on to stable and unstable nuclei. Now that we have a grounding in what we're talking about regarding particle physics. There are a couple forces inside of the nucleus. There is the electromagnetic force, in this case the strong electrostatic attraction between the electrons and the protons binding the atom together, and simultaneously separating the electrons into their understandable um, clouds of probability that we in chemistry call um, Orbitals. At this scale, the gravitational force is pretty much completely irrelevant, because it is vastly outweighed by things such as the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force. Now, the strong nuclear force, this is seen to be the strongest of the forces, however, it has an incredibly small range. Its range can be anywhere between 0.5 femtometers, that's 1 times 10 to the minus 15 meters, and around 4 femtometers. This, while incredibly small, is understandable. It allows us to uh, to explain why certain distances in atoms are as they are. Now there is a graph for this, but sadly I cannot show you physically. But you will you will find it in your textbooks if you're studying the AQA side. Now, this force does not change depending on the size of the particle. So a proton and a neutron are bound together by the same force, which is this strong force. And you will understand that the greater the amount of protons in the nucleus, the stronger the electromagnetic force is repelling them apart. But of course, the strong force is able to overcome this until you reach a point where the forces are, well, the electromagnetic force is greater than the uh, strong force. This is because the strong force only works on that 0.5 to 4 femtometer range which means that um, all of the particles are evenly spaced apart which means the more charged particles you have in the nucleus the more um, force they're emitting electromagnetically to push each other apart compared to the strong force which is only doing it at the same level from a particle to particle basis which means as we reach particles of around 80 or over uh, protons, we start to dissolve and the, uh, the nuclei become unstable. Now, unstable nuclei are not uncommon, and they normally undergo something called nuclear decay. You will have learnt about this at GCSE, including alpha and beta decay. Now, alpha decay is when a helium nuclei Or an alpha particle, which contains two protons and two neutrons, is emitted from the nucleus of said unstable particle, and leaving behind is a new element with two less protons and four less total massious particles. Just as an example, uranium-238 decays into thorium-234 via alpha emission. Now, there are two kinds of beta decay. There's beta minus decay, which we've learned about at GCSE, in which an element in, uh, of an unstable nuclei emits a, a negative beta particle, this negative beta particle is an electron. Now we'll go on further to explain this more, but additionally, a electron antineutrino is emitted as well. However, The nucleon number stays the same in this case, but the proton number goes up. Now, the explanation for this is that one of the neutrons emits an electron and becomes a proton. Therefore, the mass is conserved, but the charge is altered. For example, Rhenium decays into osmium by beta emission, in which rhenium-178 emits into osmium-178, with a beta magnet particle and an electron antineutrino. Scientists originally thought that the only particle emitted from the nucleus during beta decay was an electron, however observations showed that the energy of the particles after the beta decay was less than that before. This did not fit the principle of conserved energy. In 1930 Wolfgang Pauli creator of the Pauli principle suggested another particle was being emitted too and it carried away the missing energy. This particle had to be neutral or charge wouldn't be conserved during the decay and it had to have zero or almost zero mass as it had never been detected. Other discoveries led to Pauli's hypothesis becoming accepted and the particle was named the neutrino. This is one of our new particles. Its symbol is like a weird squiggly V The neutrino was eventually observed 25 years later, providing evidence for Pauli's hypothesis. Now, continuing on, we have antiparticles and photons. Now, you're all familiar with the concept of electromagnetic radiation and its spectrum. Photons are electromagnetic radiation. We'll go on to this further, but Electromagnetic radiation, or photons, act as both a wave and a particle depending on observations and conditions. Now, when Max Planck, spelled P-L-A-N-C-K, was investigating a black body radiation, he suggested that electromagnetic waves can only be released by discrete packets or quanta Einstein went further by suggesting that EM waves and the energy they carry can only exist in discrete packets. He called these wave packets photons. The energy E carried by one of these photons had to be the energy of one photon in joules is equal to Planck's constant multiplied by the frequency of the light in Hertz. Now, Planck's constant is something that we'll come back to a lot here. It is and write this down, 6.63 times 10 to the minus 34. This is a constant, it is the smallest known constant. Numbers don't get smaller than this. Now, you can calculate the frequency of light by doing the speed of light, which is explained in our specification as three times 10 to the eight, divided by the wavelength of light. You will always be given either the wavelength of light, its energy or its frequency to allow for these calculations. Now, because frequency is equal to the speed of light in a vacuum divided by its wavelength, we can then substitute this equation as energy is equal to Planck's constant multiplied by the speed of light in a vacuum divided by the wavelength of the light. Which, allowing intuition, tells us that the energy of a particle, of, well, of light, a photon, would be equal to Planck's constant multiplied by the speed of light in a vacuum, which is a constant divided by its wavelength, and its wavelength will get smaller, the higher its frequency, which means that the smaller the wavelength, the higher the frequency, the higher energy the light is. This we'll come back to later when we do photoelectric effect, which is in the quantum syllabus that we will cover at a later date. Now there are antiparticles. Antiparticles are exactly what they sound like. We have been told through many times in our lives that the equations that we work through are based on equal energy transfer as in energy cannot be, conser- cannot be created or destroyed, it must only be conserved or altered. Therefore, when creating the universe, for every positive particle that was made, an antiparticle is its substitute. For example, we have protons, which have, of course, plus one charge, and their specific mass, and their specific rest energy, which I described earlier. Then we have antiprotons, written as the symbol for a proton, which is a P, with a bar above it. These have a relative charge of minus one, same as the electron. But they have exactly the same mass, as mass is always positive, and exactly the same rest energy. Now, neutrons also have an antiparticle. They have a neutron and an antineutron. Again, an N with a bar above it. They both have a relative charge of zero, and they both have the same mass, and they both have the same rest energy. You're probably thinking, but wait, aren't they the same particle then? No, they are different because their quark makeup is different. We'll move on to quarks in a minute. Now, electrons are named differently in the antiparticle. You have the electron with its minus one relative charge, its mass of 9.11 times 10 to the minus 31 uh, kilograms, and its rest energy and of 0.511 mega electron volts. A positron, however, which is the name for an anti-electron, a positron is symboled as e to the plus instead of e to the minus. It has a positive one charge, same as a proton. Same mass as the electron and the same rest energy. Now, neutrinos also have their antipart counterparts. You have the neutrino and then you have the antineutrino, and all of their statuses are the same with zero across the board. They are simply there to balance equations. One of the principles that we must undergo and understand is pair-production. One of Einstein's famous theories says that energy can turn into mass and mass can turn into energy. E equals mc squared. Now, when energy is converted into mass, you get equal amounts of matter and antimatter. As I said earlier, pair-production only happens if there is enough energy to produce the masses of these particles. They must always produce a particle and its correspondent antiparticle because certain quantities must be conserved. For example, fire two protons with a large enough amount of kinetic energy at each other and you'll end up with a lot of energy at the point of impact. This energy must be converted into more particles if an extra proton is formed then there will always be an antiproton to go with it. It's not just protons that can be produced in pair production photon has enough energy, it can produce an electron-positron pair. It tends to happen when a photon passes near a nucleus. The particles produced in a detector curve away from each other in opposite directions. This is because when they, applied, when they are in an applied magnetic field, they have opposite charges. You'll see why this happens in year two if you are doing A-level physics. The minimum energy needed for pair production is the total rest energy of the particles that are produced. The rest energy of the particle is just the amount of energy that would be produced if it's, all of its mass was transformed into energy. Pair production is, always produces a particle antiparticle pair. Both of these have rest energy. So, the minimum energy needed is at least two times the rest energy, which is written as E with a Sanskrit of O below it. There have enough energy to produce the particles for energy to be conserved. Now, we can calculate rest energy by simply using the E equals mc squared equation. Now, while there is pair production, there is also annihilation. Now, when a particle meets its antiparticle, the result is annihilation, which is the perfect conservation of energy as all of its mass is transformed into energy. We collide an electron and a positron assuming this is after pair production has happened they will collide and all of their momentum and energy will be converted into two photons these photons to conserve momentum will be put moving exactly away from each other perpendicular to the collision course of the electron and positron you can calculate the minimum energy pr- of a photon produced by annihilation the interaction between the particle antiparticle pair which both have a rest energy now the two photons that need to have a total energy of at least 2e for energy to be conserved in this interaction. So 2e minimum is equal to 2e rest, and e minimum is equal to e rest. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Ben.